One of the most uh, effective ways that I have found to get around having to forgive people is to try to avoid the possibility of ever needing to. So the first step in this ingenious approach is making sure that I don't get very close to people or allow them to get too close to me. And if you're pretty strategic about this approach, the relationship doesn't feel shallow or stilted. You just have to be careful about what parts of you you're willing to give to it and how much you're willing to trust. The optimal, optimal amount that I have found is about 40%. <laughs> That's enough to feel really significant, but not so much as to feel really vulnerable. 40%. Write that down. Secondly, I allow just enough realism about people in general to help me avoid being too hurt uh, by them when they wrong me. Because that's what people do. They wrong you. And no, that's not me being cynical, just being realistic. And there is a difference. I'm not quite so sure what the difference is, where the line is between realistic and cynical, but there is one, trust me. So let me just summarize this approach. If you, if you follow this way, when, when people do something hurtful to you, whether intentionally or not, you can tell yourself that you weren't that close to them anyway, and they're just people being people, right? You can compartmentalize the hurt and the disappointment uh, that you might otherwise feel just by filing it in the unfortunate but unavoidable realities of life folder, because I know you have one. Fact is, you've already done the work on the front end, right? By not getting your hopes up, by not allowing them to matter too much to you or to matter as much as they would otherwise, and you can just move on. Of course, I'm being facetious, right? Um, but I have found that this works most of the time or, you know, some of the time. It works enough of the time. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, I'm being facetious, obviously, but there's some real truth in there. I think there is for me, maybe for you. I'm a self-protective person, and maybe you are too. It's served me in many situations, especially as I navigated a really catastrophic relationship, complete loss of my relationship with my father uh, and some other family. But self-protection has also been a liability for me in 24 years of marriage and in relationships where simply withdrawing or compartmentalizing is just not an option, nor should it be. Certainly not for someone called to ministry, but really not for any of us called to community, called to be the church. But maybe you can relate to this, to what I'm saying here, or maybe you wish you could relate because uh, you know, maybe many of your close relationships and deep investments have come at a price with as many wounds and many difficulties and as much broken trust as you can stand or can't stand. But I think if this is kind of a spectrum, wherever you are on the spectrum, what we know from the gospel is that avoiding forgiveness is simply not an option, whether preemptively or responsively. That's because getting hurt and hurting others is unavoidable unless you decide to become a hermit. The gospel tells us quite plainly that the answer to the problem of human failure and its toll on everyday life, which Jesus calls sin, it's not to avoid relationships nor to try to curate them perfectly. With all the right people in all the 
most ideal situations. And it's certainly not to develop a fluffy and sentimental view of people that doesn't actually face reality. The gospel answer is actually to be ready to forgive others and to seek forgiveness from others, to always be ready, as hard as that is. As Dr. King once said, forgiveness is not an occasional act. It's a constant attitude. And I think this insight, it captures well how we can be forgiving even when someone refuses to admit their wrongdoing, making it seemingly impossible to come by the necessary reciprocity of forgiveness or the reconciliation that's meant to come on the other side. But if we survey the New Testament, I think that we can confidently argue that the call to forgive is the most prominent of all the ethics of Jesus. Who includes it, actually, in the prayer that he gave to his disciples when they asked him, how do we pray? And it's the one we pray together every Sunday. In the Lord's Prayer, we don't say, think about this, we don't say, forgive us as we feel really sorry and as we get better at doing or not doing the things for which we need forgiveness. What do we say? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others who trespass against us. It's weighty. This means that beyond all the relational and the emotional, the psychological, the social, and the societal reasons to forgive that are woven into the redemptive nature of truth, there's an undeniable spiritual one. There's a reason that God gives because he commands us to forgive. It's a condition of his forgiveness for us. And I think Jesus makes that really plain to us in Matthew 18 today. It's clearly the force of that, even if that's hard to understand. And that's what we want to seek today is a little understanding. So let's do that for a few minutes. This passage is clearly connected to what precedes it in chapter 18, which you might call sort of a mini-sermon on the community or on the congregation, on the church that Jesus is instructing his disciples in, how to get along, how to do this together. And it begins initially with this call to the humility of a child. This is going to be the precondition that you are pursuing this type of humility. But it also includes the following. It includes a serious warning to those who might become an unhealthy influence within the community. That's in verses 5 through 7. And then verse 8 issues a call to take some drastic measures to deal with things or even to deal with people who make sin all too easy or common in the community. Jesus uses drastic language, cut off the hand, gouge out the eye, deal with it, he's saying. Deal with it honestly, deal with it radically. It's a problem, but deal with it. And in verses 10 through 14, Jesus teaches the ethic of going after and restoring the one straying sheep because people are going to mess up. People are going to drift away. But go after and restore the one straying sheep, not merely focusing on the 99 who seem to have it all together. And the church is historically inordinately focused on all the people who have it together, when the fact is, none of us really do. In other words, God doesn't write off the wayward, especially those who've been misled by others. So we too, we might have to evangelize the evangelized. Truth is, we might be that wayward sheep one day. I've never met anybody who anticipated that they would fall away. And thankfully, I've met many people for whom the church reached out and went after them. And I hope that ever happens to me one day that you'll come after me. 
Hopefully someone will come after you. Then in verse 15, Jesus expounds on this seeking after ethic all the more with this real world challenge of of confronting someone who has sinned against you, which that's what we talked about last week. Be willing to tell the hard truth, he's saying, to do it as a caring community and to call one another higher, call one another closer to you and to the Lord. Do the hard work of making things right. And then right here we arrive at our verses for today. And in this, Jesus concludes with the ethic of relentless forgiveness. It's almost as though he's buttoning it up. But Peter tees him up. Okay, and it's, it's, it makes sense. You know, Peter's saying, okay, Jesus, if we're supposed to confront and we're supposed to seek reconciliation, how many times should we reasonably forgive that person if they are a, someone who just serially gets it wrong? Peter's actually, I think we read this, he, he's going to impress Jesus. You know, Peter, he's going to step out and he's going to say it. He's going to impress Jesus, or rather he's going to try. How about seven whole times that we forgive that person? He and the other disciples, they probably would have been familiar with the words of the prophet Amos, who repeatedly declared on behalf of the Lord, for three transgressions I will forgive, but the fourth I will punish. And so... They internalized this. Many biblical commentators, they, they say that that had become common in Israel to think of forgiveness in this really transactional way, technical way. God forgives three offenses, but he doesn't forgive the fourth. So that's the rule. That's what we're going to follow. That's our limit. Man, Peter, he doubles the old standard, three exemptions. He adds that fourth. And, you know, maybe it's just to make it the round number, God's number of seven. So we shouldn't be surprised, though, that Jesus plays a much deeper cut than the prophet Amos. He revisits what Israelites called the law of Lamech in Genesis 4, which we read today. Um, Sally, well done with all the names. Lamech is proud of his vengeful ways, right? He thinks he's more powerful than his notorious great-great-great-grandfather Cain, He's multiplying the power of revenge, right? Look at me, he says to his wives. I'm a tough guy. Arguably, Lamech's attitude is the one that so often governs the ways of our world. In our self-justification at best, or in our collective illusions of heroism at worst. Think about how many novels and films and fables, stories celebrate revenge as a form of heroism going all the way back to Achilles in Homer's Iliad. Think about how satisfying it can feel to watch vengeance, that vengeance unfold if you've been hurt. Think about how good those honest, vengeful psalms feel when you have a clear and present enemy. But remember that they're prayers. Jesus takes Lamech's revenge math and he applies it to Peter's forgiveness math and he flips the ethic entirely. Not seven Peter, but 77. If anything is heroic, it's limitless forgiveness. If anything is strong, it's the power to release others from their debts to you. Because that's what God has done. Jesus concludes this sermon about community, about the congregation, and his point uh, here with this edgy parable of forgiveness. He's going to drive it home. 
Verse 23 begins with the two Greek words, dia tuto, and we translate that therefore, which is really kind of too boring because I think it's more helpful to read it as here's why. Here's why the kingdom is different. Here's why. Jesus is going to provide a theology of forgiveness to support his ethic of forgiveness. God is why. So he does that with this story. Let me fill in some cultural blanks here as I summarize it. There's a king who wants to settle his accounts with his bond servants, which we don't have in our day. These, these are people working off their debts to the king. Imagine you've racked up credit card debt. This is the closest correlation maybe and you can't pay and no consolidation loan will be enough for it and now Samuel L. Jackson shows up and he's not smiling and asking you what's in your wallet right there is nothing in your wallet at this point and Capital One is now going to let you come and work for them without pay to avoid going to jail for all of your debt if they can't get your money they can use your sweat your labor you're a bond servant now the bondservant in this story owes the king 10,000 talents. And a talent was worth about 20 years of work. Do the math. Basically, he owes him a zillion dollars. <laughs> One zillion dollars. Jeff Bezos couldn't touch this unthinkable, unpayable debt in a hundred exorbitant lifetimes. Couldn't do it. Why so extreme, Jesus? Why so extreme? Come to find out, this is actually how Jesus is illustrating the ridiculous debt that people have racked up against a holy God. What we have done to the world and to the creatures of God, it's unpayable. It's unpayable. But shockingly, he forgives it. He writes it off. The king is not looking for payback. It's impossible to pay it back. He wants freedom for those who owe him. He wants to be reconciled to them. He wants to be reconciled to us with nothing between us. And the hope of that forgiveness, the reconciler of that debt is standing right there telling this story. He's not talking about an abstraction. He's talking about himself He's going to pay it. He will become the embodiment of the impossible and the unthinkable in so many ways, but in particular in this way. And then the parable turns dark, doesn't it? We find out there's a little bit of Lamech in the liberated bondservant. The truth is there's a little bit of Lamech in all of us. If we're honest, he goes and he mercilessly collects on a hundred denarii, something his bondservant could have worked off in three or four months. He strangles him and gets him arrested. The contrast here is stunning. But hey, this is his money. This is his life. Never mind the king and all of his wealth. This is my money. This is my life. And so there's a theo theologian named Pierre Bonnard, who, a uh, French theologian by the same name as the painter. Um, he said this, he said, everything in this parable is unlikely. Unlikely. It's rhetorically drastic, all of it. This massive debt, the king's radical forgiveness, the inconceivable heartlessness of this bondservant who's just been forgiven, the savage punishment on his part. But he says all these unlikelies point to kingdom truths. Because in our conception, in our imagination, it's impossible. But for God, it is possible. 
The primary undeniable kingdom truth that this, these unlikelies point to is this. Our willingness to radically forgive is directly related to the radical forgiveness that we have received. It is what builds the house we live in. It's what fills the bank we spend from. Jesus is laying the first run of blocks of our relational and our interpersonal ethics upon the foundation of God's merciful and gracious relationship to us. And the cornerstone of that very foundation, it is the forgiveness and acceptance and the reconciliation that we have in Jesus who canceled our debt for sin. So what's required of us? Humility, recognition, We admit that we owe it, that we need forgiveness, that we don't want to keep racking up debts we cannot pay. And yes, it's this willingness to forgive others as we've been forgiven. And so as forgiven people, it's our determination. As the church, it's our determination to make this ethic central in the way we face the world as it really is. To face the relationships and the human struggle as they really are. We use the word atonement. Uh, It's not in the scriptures in that sense, uh, but we use this word atonement to describe the truth that Jesus paid the moral and spiritual debt we owed, but we could not pay. But we're not talking about something transactional in the end. When we try to systematize the way of thinking of what God has done for us and how God relates to us, it's a mistake. It's not so much for forensic as it is relational. We shouldn't be imagining this cold king in the sky who needs payment for sin and who extracts it from one person, namely his son. We see, even Jesus says about this king, there's a great pity for those who are indebted the way they are and cannot pay it who owe a zillion dollars. Fundamentally, this atonement is the radical, unthinkable self-giving of God himself. God the King. Why? For our freedom. For the freedom of those he loves. Of those who will receive it. It's a gift of love and compassion. It's flowing from the love between Father and Son. It's a priceless gift. It's priceless because our sin is not trivial. It's not trivial as though it has no power or consequence in the world. It has profound effect on the world. It's what wrecks the world. It's what wrecks us. It leads to confusion. It leads to discouragement and corruption and loss and death and all the bad things. It begins in sin. It ends in sin. Unless, in fact, it ends in forgiveness and reconciliation. Even in the tiniest ways, if we're honest, it makes, sin makes life harder. In magnified ways, systemic ways, it makes life unlivable for those who are suffering under its sway. Societal ways, it's a debt that just compounds every time we're complicit in our own sin and the sin that shapes the world. We contribute. And that sin that we share, it represents a massive debt that we owe to God. Because why? God created this world for peace and for order, for flourishing. Sin crucifies the innocent. But the innocent, Jesus willingly but agonizingly cancels our zillion dollar debt. 
He does that on the cross. And when we embrace it fully as our way of seeing, the cross is our way of seeing, our way of being, the cross is actually able to liberate us from the root of all our problems, all our difficulties, and from all the devil's works that destroy the creatures of God, as we talk about, we'll talk about in the baptismal liturgy today. It liberates us. And in fact, it's through us that it liberates the world. We live in a world of perpetual debt accumulation, I think. You can think about it that way, relationally and otherwise. And that's why our forgiveness of others matters. If we don't, with these instructions, who will? It applies the power of the cross. The church applies the power of the cross to the daily relational debts and struggles of life and applies it to the sin that so easily besets us and our world. You don't have to be a Christian. Listen, you don't have to be a Christian to know the power of forgiveness, how important it really is. Just for grins and just for giggles, I asked ChatGPT, the AI, this question. These are the kinds of questions I like to ask ChatGPT. Why should people forgive? And it spit out 10 reasons instantly, nine of which had nothing to do with religion or spirituality. Emotional healing, mental well-being, relationship repair, self-empowerment, moving forward, reduced resentment, compassion and empathy. And number nine was health benefits, including lower blood pressure, reduced risk of heart disease, a better immune system, and more. Imagine that. God's a genius. God understands the creatures he has made. And even an AI, so somebody sent, showed me a picture. They asked an AI, hey, get, show me a picture of Jesus flipping over the tables in, in the temple. Have you seen this? It's literally Jesus doing a backflip over a table in the temple. <laughs> but the AI got this right, didn't it? So let me just close with this. I want to acknowledge today that full on that forgiveness is not easy. Jesus certainly isn't saying that it is. In fact, none of this would even make much sense if it wasn't hard, would it? But he is saying it's necessary. It's necessary for our souls, for our relationships. It's necessary for the good of the world. He's saying that none of us are reduced to the sum of our failures or trespasses. And so we can't reduce others to them. We are people who call upon and depend upon a Savior who suffered unthinkable abuse at the hands of people who hated him in real time, his own people, even his own neighborhood and his family. But we're also a people who know that we're, we're complicit in big ways and small in making life together heavier and harder. We're called to something different. Our only hope is a way better than our own, per usual. Our only freedom from the unforgiveness that magnifies the pain of living in a broken world is what? It's radical forgiveness that has made us free and cleansed us and our consciences so that guilt and shame don't win. That's our message to the world. And I'll bet so much, the greatest percentage of what is at work in our world to shape our society flows in some way out of guilt and shame and compensation and just sowing new fig leaves to cover the nakedness we feel. 
even the way we hold on to our unforgiveness. We're all learning to let forgiveness win. We all have people in our lives who've wounded us, many of whom have never, and they may never return to seek forgiveness. And that can keep us feeling really stuck, either wanting to forgive and reconcile, or it can keep us really bitter, demanding real payment and real sincerity and expecting real remorse that, listen, it may never come. But again, Dr. King's words, I think, are spot on. We're called to this constant attitude of forgiveness because we have been so radically forgiven, willing to forgive, because you know what? That keeps us really near to the heart of God, even when our hearts are heavy. As Nelson Mandela, uh, who languished unjustly in a South African prison for 27 years, famously said, he said this, I'll leave you with his words. Forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That's why it's such a powerful weapon. Do you believe it? Father, help us to believe it. Help us to be fearless in our forgiveness. Your perfect love expressed in radical, self-giving forgiveness, it can cast out all fear. And Lord, let it be to us. Help us to wield forgiveness as a weapon against our common enemy who would constantly try to pit us against one another and against you. Jesus, help us to trust your words, help us to trust your ways, never letting our unforgiveness become a barrier between us and you. Holy Spirit, heal us of the wounds that remain. We pray that you would keep us from identifying too greatly with our own wounds, becoming anxious, becoming self-protective. Make us one as you and the Father with the Son are one. Amen.